0: You know, I was sitting here in my office, looking at my computer, thinking about that I needed to record a, an intro for an episode here, I'm trying to think of what I was going to say, and it's kind of a strange thing, because I'm sitting here completely by myself, staring at a screen, and I need to start talking about something, but I'm not talking to someone. I'm just talking to myself, recording myself, saying something that I'm ultimately going to share for other people to listen to later on. It's a very strange dynamic that's become kind of normal to us, particularly people who have their own podcast or radio show or whatever it is that, that this is. Anyways, welcome to King Pilled. This is King Pilled. I am Matthew, your host. And it's been a while since we've posted something out here since we've actually put up an episode and I don't know exactly when we're going to put up another one but for the time being you'll have to make do with this conversation this is a conversation I had last week with good friend of the show Adam Patrick he's kind of in a similar boat where we've taken more or less a sabbatical away from doing our shows and we've been focused on stuff with our own lives with me it's been trying to get settled in Texas getting a new life off the ground getting a new career started and all of the attendant concerns that go with that. And for, I mean, it's largely an excuse. I've got a lot of other reasons why I've haven't really produced a whole lot of content lately. I've been mulling over thinking a lot of things and trying to really decide how I want to go forward with a lot of what we're doing here and what I want to focus on and yeah, there's lots of lots of housekeeping that needs to get done, and just trying to make room and space for all of that, and trying to decide how much I value some of the stuff that I want to say. But Adam is a very interesting person. He's been going through a really interesting transition in his own life as he has encountered orthodoxy. Anybody who's listened to our show for a while now is probably going to be familiar with the the little journey that I've gone on over the last year or so, and it seems like Adam is is really getting that started for himself. He's got a bit of a head start on me in a lot of ways because he was raised Catholic. So the apostolic tradition thing isn't as foreign to him as it was to me. At the same time, that also means that he has stuff that he has to unwind that I didn't. So we each are doing our own journey in our own way in our own time. But he and I were talking on the phone and when he and I get going, it's easy to just have just hours fly by. And So we were talking on the phone the other day, and we thought, you know what? This would have made a great conversation if we would have just recorded this as a podcast. Why don't we just get together and actually record a podcast? So that's what we did. We sat down and we talked for about two hours, and we didn't really have a purpose with it. We just kind of started talking, and what was going to come out was what was going to come out. And as it turned out, I liked the conversation. I think it was a pretty interesting one. We talked for around two hours, and it was just kind of a meandering discussion, focused on our perception of Eastern Christianity coming as children of the West and approaching it with a really Western perspective, and the things that have stood out to us, how it's changed us, and the word that you're going to hear us use here is phronema, and it's one that I would encourage you to look up if you're interested. It's spelled P-H-R-O-E-N-E-M-A, phronema. And we kind of explain it in the, in the episode, so I'll just let you hear that. But um, I'd encourage you to look it up. It's something that we're developing, and um, not, not that we're developing the concept itself, but we are trying to develop our own orthodox phronema. So that's the focus of the conversation here. Um, this is an episode that, that he posted on his podcast, uh, soon to be renamed podcast, The Age of Information, and I'm posting it out here. You can also see the video version of this if you go to the YouTube channel, just look up King Pilled on YouTube. If you found this podcast, then you'll have no problem finding the YouTube video as well. And uh, you can look at our, at our mugs as we're, as we're talking. Anyways, thank you for listening. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Adam
1: Patrick. I love the countdown. Three, two, one, go with the exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> it's very enthusiastic. Yeah, man, I am. I am ready. Are you Are you ready to roar?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Shout out, Mark, Mark Claire. Yeah. Let's roar, kitty cat. Uh, so, um, Matt, you and,
1: you and I talked on the phone a couple of times over the last couple of months, and and you've been you know super busy with your life, and obviously a lot of stuff going on in my life, and you've talked about it on on the couple of episodes that you've done, and I don't want to rehash what I talked to, to Pete about. Hopefully, build on it here, um, but we decided to you know dust off a little bit and. For I'll speak for myself personally, like just kind of get motivated to do this thing, whatever this thing is. Again, um, so we thought maybe we'd kind of share um, a live stream here, and you could you could put it up on King Pill, and I'll put it up on whatever the heck it is that I'm doing. Uh, a, a rebrand would be really easy if I could just we we're and we we're talking about this a second ago. Just motivate myself to sit in front of the computer for 25 minutes and just rebrand it. And every time I think, man, I have 25 minutes maybe i'll just sit on the back deck and read one of the 300 books that have been accumulating over the last 2 years and i end up doing that instead so thank you for pushing me to come back and and kind of like hold me cuz you know it, I, every time doesn't matter who it is like jesus christ himself could be like i'll be a guest on your show and i'm like you know we could totally do it tomorrow and so, <laughs> so yeah so um maybe like kind of what you know, your thoughts are coming into here and kind of what you like hope to get out of it.
0: Honestly, I, I, I don't really have any expectations. I, I sort of the same, like I want to, I want to kind of get back in the swing of things. I've done a couple of, of like guest people have had me as guests on a couple of shows recently. And I realized as I got into it that I was like, man, this is, it just feels good to sit here and just kind of get stuff out of my head. I I realize when I don't talk about things out loud that like thoughts start backing up in my head. And it's like, my brain just bogs down with all these words that I need to get out. I need to get them out to someone. And it feels, it feels like, I don't, I don't want to be the person that has to talk to other people to be able to think, but it seems like that's kind of what I am. I'm the person that has to talk to other people in order to think. And, um, so I'm, I'm kind of figuring out how to embrace that. But, uh, it's funny when we're sitting here, like like talking like this. You you were just before we got started here. You were like, well, maybe maybe you, you do an intro or or something like that. And I was like, if it, it's weird to me because we sit and we talk on the phone and it's just completely natural, you know? Hey man, how's it going? Have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And then you sit down to record a conversation like this, and suddenly there's a third person present, but that like that third person is faceless. You don't mm-hmm. know who it is, but there's someone who's sitting there listening, and you start. Instinctively, talking to like now, I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to the other people that I know are going to be listening, and that's that's a weird thing. It's it's weird to talk to someone who's there but not there at the same time. And it's completely normal for people that sit and do interviews and have other people on their shows and stuff. And, and I'm the same way where I've got a whole list of guests I want to invite on, and I'll sit and I'll listen to their their uh, like interviews on other shows. And I'm like, man, this is amazing. I wish I I wish I could talk to him. I could ask him this, this, and that. And I'm like, I know I literally could write to this guy right now and say, like, he follows me on Twitter. I could write to him right now and say, hey, would you come on my show? And I know he would say yes. But for whatever reason, I just haven't done it. I just haven't reached out and 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 done that. And people are, I get comments every so often. Hey, when are you guys doing another episode? And I'm like, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. But just, I guess, just not in the right headspace right now.
1: Yeah, the... um. The prep work that, at least for me, that, that went into having guests on and writing down questions and making sure we're touching on points, you know, those were things that I like, I wanted the answers. So it was easy for me to write the questions down. And now I'm trying to figure out what questions I want to ask because I can mostly answer them like on my phone, you know, like nice. I, I want to know whatever information about whatever thing like YouTube has a series on it or somebody that I follow has a series on it. And they've kind of already done the work. Like I talked to a few people about doing maybe like continuing the Bible series that I was doing with Chris Manis. We only did the book of Genesis. Obviously, there's what thirty eight more books to go. Uh, you know, so we, we thought about doing more of that. But then I found like people who've done it better, <laughs> and yeah. it's easy for me to just say like, "Well, why don't you go listen to that guy?" Because I'm learning from him. Like, why would I do it? And and that's kind of the the, the point where, where I'm at where. I was talking to you on the phone about where I kind of thought I wanted to take the show, which is continuing a journey. Um, but I think some parts of a journey you kind of take alone on your own way alone, sort of by nature. And it's hard to you know, it took me probably four years before I finally sat down and started doing you're talking over me. It wasn't like I didn't want to. I just didn't know what to say. And then one day I just did it. So maybe the just doing it part helps me out. But I wanted to start with this. And and for some reason, whenever I have like a little bit of a memory block or don't know where to start, I just go to Facebook. And usually the first, (laughs) it's really the only time I'm ever on Facebook unless I'm, well, I I won't say that on air what I'm doing. It's nothing bad, but probably shouldn't say it in public. Um, So I found this and I'm not going to say the young lady's name, but she put up, you know, the, the guy in the blue shirt with the, coffee mug at the picnic table and it says change my mind and there's always something just inserted in it i don't i know the guy i think we said his name but See um heard. oh yeah yeah crowder right ladder crowder right yeah uh, it says row being overturned is why you need an ar-15 change my mind and i went man if that doesn't just sum up for me anyway the reason i don't ever go on facebook in one meme It would be like that. Somebody would think that that was interesting and not completely boring and ridiculous. So maybe that's like a a place to start, because you and I both talked about um, kind of modernity and enlightenment being a mistake and things along those lines. And what I, you know, it, it actually we talked in depth about this, maybe our first or second time that we talked a couple of years ago about kind of where the quote unquote problem started, you know, is it? And and by problem, I mean, like we looked at COVID and we looked at quote unquote COVID tyranny and libertarian essentially doctrinal collapse. And we're like, well, how do we get here? Where did it start? What was like the catalyst? Um, I'll be a little provocative and say it was Augustine, but without giving anybody any caveats or like context of (laughs) why I'm saying that. Um, But that's kind of been my exploration and it, it pushed me into Orthodox Christianity kind of as, as a result, it wasn't like I was looking for that and then trying to then figure out what, like, what type of culture do I want to live in? Why do I want to live in that culture and why don't we have it? And just to kind of start, I would say we, well, I would like to live in a Christian culture, one, two, what does that mean? And three, why do I think I don't? Right. So hmm. what, like, what are your thoughts on that kind of rambling incoherent start that I sort of <laughs> led?
0: <laughs> it's interesting. One thing you said early about, um, the just kind of, just kind of talking through it and you started out doing the show because you had questions that you wanted to ask. And now you're kind of like, well, when I have those questions, I can just, I can just look it up and I can get the, get, get it answered without having to do a show and everything. And when I started doing the show, it was because I had stuff that was on my mind that I wanted to say that I was saying to people in private chats, Steven in particular. And he was saying, dude, you need to say this stuff publicly. Other people need to hear this. And now we're a year, year and a half later. And there's a lot of people who are saying all this stuff. So I'm like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I have anything new and interesting to contribute to the conversation. I, I'm, I'm kind of, it's like everyone else is saying all the stuff that I was saying, and so now I feel like okay I, I, I did my job, I got the stuff out there that I was thinking now other people are thinking it, and like they can take these ideas and run with them and I don't have any n- new ideas to contribute and there's this like latent part in my psychology I think where I feel like if something isn't new, it's not important or interesting or valuable it like the 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 familiar stuff is is boring to me. I want something that's new, that's original, that's cutting edge, that's, that, uh, especially if it like catches people off guard or it's edgy or provocative, like those types of things, those, those are what get me going. So I figure there was, that's what will get the people going. And it, so being in that state of mind where I'm kind of, where I'm like, I don't, I don't really have anything to say. I don't have anything new or original to bring. I don't want to just say the same stuff over and over again. It's, it's, the irony is not lost on me that at the same time that I've been struggling with that, I've been delving into some of the oldest ideas in the world. If not, I mean, Western civilization isn't the whole world, but like, so these are some of these are some of the oldest traditions and ideas that, that are known to mankind. And those are, those have had such a powerful impact on me. They've, they've, completely altered the the perspective on the world that I had it to where to me, like it doesn't even once upon a time, it seemed edgy to me to say something like the enlightenment was a mistake or talking about a post-liberal world or those kinds of things. Now they're, those are so common. Like that doesn't even, that doesn't even seem edgy to me because my mind has been stuck so far back in the past. And I, as I'm, as I'm kind of mulling through all these things, I, one thing I want to say f- before we really dive further into some of this stuff is that it's inevitable that if you're someone who has an audience, no matter how big or small, and you talk about stuff that, you know, that other people are interested in listening to because they want to know more about, it's inevitable that you're going to be considered an authority. And I want to make it very, very clear that I'm not an authority on Orthodox Christianity. I'm not I'm not someone who is interested in giving spiritual advice, and I'm not someone who should be seen as someone trying to give spiritual advice. What I'm describing is my own experience, and I'm trying to put these ideas together for myself. And it just so happens that apparently I'm not capable of putting ideas together for myself in my own time. I have to do it like like throwing ideas at someone else. That's the way hearing my, hearing the words come out of my mouth is the way my brain puts it together. So Mm. I want to make it clear. I don't want people to see me as an authority or someone who's speaking for the church or anything like that. So that being said, there's this, this term that I kept coming across that you mentioned when we were on the phone the other day and it's the term is phronema. and it's a, there, there isn't really a uh, an English equivalent for it. The closest thing you might get would be um, something like a, a perspective or a paradigm or a worldview, mm-hmm. um, a state of mind. Sort of is is probably the closest. I can't remember the exact translation of it, but within, especially within like academic circles, within within orthodoxy, they talk about that having an orthodox phronema which is essentially seeing the world the way that an Orthodox Christian sees the world. And the way that an Orthodox Christian sees the world is by and large, drastically different from the way a run of the mill Western American person sees the world. Just, just completely from the ground up. Fundamental um, metaphysics and epistemology are, are, are just completely different. We live in completely different worlds. And I guess what I've been experiencing over the last few years is a process of, (laughs) I've been going through a a, a transition. I've been transitioning. (laughs) This is a nice loaded word for you. I've been transitioning from having kind of a generic lib phronema, so to speak, to beginning to take on the orthodox phronema. And being someone who's born and raised and completely enculturated in the West and uh, someone who's a, who's a converted Orthodox, I, I don't expect that that process is ev- like, I'm, I'm never going to see the world the way that a, uh, an Eastern born cradle Orthodox person would. I'm, I'm invariably going to see the world the way that someone who's converted to Orthodoxy sees the world. So it's going to be kind of a bridge <clears throat> between these two worldviews, but all of that being said, then the question you asked, you know, what, like you said something, something to the effect of, um, uh, you're, you're sort of, you're sort of beginning to see the world in a new way. You're, you're beginning to, um, like why, why, why do you want to live in a Christian culture? And why don't you live in a Christian culture? Why do you think you don't? That's not something you would have asked yourself a couple of years ago. Like both of those questions. Those are both questions that you wouldn't have thought to yourself really a couple of years ago. And, um, I think that I, the way that I would, would frame it up, I guess, is that we're, we're seeing the world through different eyes. We're seeing what the world could be, were it to be grounded in different presuppositions or were it to be grounded upon mm-hmm. a different epistemology were it to be like if, if people were to have the awareness i said when we first started about the, the idea of having like like you and i are sitting here talking we're just talking on the phone we don't think anything of it and all of a sudden we hit record and suddenly there's a third person sitting here that we're talking to mm-hmm. it's it's similar to that for me at least this this uh, having the the this this developing orthodox view is that suddenly there's other people in the room there's there's a different perspective in the room that's present all the time and if other people it feels like if other people had that same um metaphysical sense that same awareness of the entities that are present around us all the time they would act differently they would behave differently they would have different priorities and as long as as long as i'm it's like if you're if you're walking around seeing a different world than everybody else who's around you it's like do i act as if i'm in the world that everybody else is in or do i act as if i'm in the world that i'm in cuz if i act as if i'm in the world that i'm in i'm invariably going to start clashing and running into other people i mean on a, on a silly level, like if some people see a bus coming and other people don't see the bus coming, they're going to wind up in very different places. (laughs) This, 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 this happens on the metaphysical level. And it's like, suddenly I am aware of a whole bunch of metaphysical buses driving around that, that other people don't see. And so I'm caught between Do I just start adjusting my own behavior to either avoid or jump on board these different invisible buses and just let other people catch up? Or do I start trying to point them out to people? Do I have an obligation to to point to this, you know, this invisible metaphysical bus traffic driving around to kind of torture the analogy do i have an obligation to point to those and try to get other people to notice them or do i just start acting as if they're there and wait for other people to notice the um to notice what's in the negative space mm. I don't know that's this I've, I've gone super abstract so let me know if you're if you're tracking them.
1: no i'm, I'm totally i'm totally tracking and i think the about I'll say about five episodes into doing you're talking over me so may 2020 what i ended up after a couple stumbles and talking to restaurant people and trying to see where i was going what initially became sort of the the ultimate ultimate formula of the show was that people were void of meaning and purpose and trying to find it somewhere mm-hmm. and when you're on I, I was as was slowly revealed to me through talking to folks like yourself and just sort of allowing myself to be in the ether and, and soak up information Was that we are living in the middle? We we are still living in Christendom, right? So the culture of Christianity as a religion, the culture being Christendom, and I I like that terminology. And we'll talk later about where I kind of got that from, but um, I'm sure you can you can sympathize. We're we're living in that culture, but we've removed the idea of Christianity from it, but it's still carrying on in the same trajectory, and so people are now trying to either find a version of Christ that sort of works for them to continue um, not seeing the buses, right? Or um, they're seeing them and they absolutely love buses, right? But there's, (laughs) to to continue your to to, to torture the analogy, uh, buses are great. I I can't wait to get hit by another one today, you know, (laughs) or maybe I should be driving it, hitting other people. So, but we're not seeing it the way it was initially intended to be seen, right? So um, you mentioned, uh a couple of years ago, would I have asked that question? Um, and I, I wouldn't have, but I did 25 years ago, right? When, mm-hmm. when I was going through Catholic school, which I did kindergarten through eighth and grew up in the church and did the altar server thing, altar boy thing, um, and had, you know, all the catechesis, did it everything the right way. I mean, as I was told to do it. Um and growing up in the house I did where we were encouraged to read and ask questions and you know, I, I really read the Bible. Like I had, I'll say half the Bible memorized just by the very nature that it was occurring around me all the time, the same way people memorize baseball stats or whatever. And what I was reading, and I've said this too many times, so I won't belabor it for the listeners, but what I was reading was not what I was seeing. I wasn't seeing it from the Catholic church. I wasn't seeing it from people who said they were Catholics and I wasn't seeing it from Protestants. And I had a, a very good concept of, Christianity up until Augustine, up until like the fifth century. And then I had a really good understanding of it from Luther to, I don't know, like the Russian Revolution, something like that, like the 1900s. Um, But for some reason, it never occurred to me to talk about that freaking thousand years in the middle. And (laughs) I I don't know why it's an entire millennium of information that I never even thought to consume that way. It was like when I delved into between. 500 and 1500 AD, it was all philosophy and logic. And that's probably another product of growing up in the household I did with, you know, an atheist philosophy professor's father, et cetera, et cetera. But I did ask that question and I said, This is what I'm reading. And I'm seeing this even in the early church fathers. I'm really not seeing it in Augustine. Um, and nobody even knew who the early church fathers were. And I don't think I called them that. I probably called them by name, like Ignatius or Polycarp or whatever. And nobody knew what I was talking about and nobody was seeing it that way. So I just went, well, I guess I'm not a Christian. I have this choice and this choice. I don't see either one. So I guess I'm a pagan or a Gnostic or whatever. I read those things and I'm like, well, they're a little bit later, but it seems maybe, maybe I'm more like that, you know? So if I had to pick like a real underlying motive for wanting to get back out there and talk to people, it's to sort of show that they're... It doesn't have to be a binary decision. It really isn't even a decision at all. It's a decision between God and not, not between my particular flavor of Christianity that day. And well, this church doesn't, some of the things they do are a little weird or they want me to do this and it conflicts with work. So I'm gonna go to that one. This one seems a uh, super cool and historical, but I don't know, it's a little bit long service. So I want to go to this one. And this guy shops at the supermarket. So maybe I'll go to that one. Cause he's my neighbor. And you bounce around and try to figure out why like none of this is working and then a lot of people end up either atheist or they end up in like a non-denominational sort of feel-good circle group or something where you're basically at a picnic with a bunch of nice people but like there's no presence of anything there and so i thought well that's like super depressing to think that it's no reason it's it's no wonder that western culture has ended up in this nihilistic place looking to accomplish everything for ourselves if we don't, if we feel like the, like the Christian alternative to that is punishment in order to go to heaven, which is mm. such a weird way to look at Christianity that I don't blame atheists for saying, well, can I just be a good person? No, you have to do this, 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 and this, and you have to do it this way or maybe this way this way, but really it's about justifying good works or maybe it's about faith alone or, you know, is it about infusion or is it about imputation? And it, you start breaking these things down. They're like, I just want to be a good person. Like, why, why do I go to hell for just being a good person if I don't accept Christ? And then there's this whole other thing that has, you know, an unbroken line of tradition that completely excuse all of that, that says all of that is the wrong question it's all essentially human beings try to rationalize their way into doing as little work as possible. Hmm. And that comes from, like you said, a a really bad presupposition that you had to torture yourself in order to become one with the reason you were created in the first place. And I feel like if, you know, I I don't, I'm not in any way you probably agree with this, trying to tell people that they need to go to their closest Eastern Orthodox Church and start worshiping tomorrow, (laughs) because you probably should not do that. I'm going to say most people listening probably do not want to do that. Not that you don't want. I actually don't want you to do that. But there is a message that you would think somebody was writing a self-help book. An atheist self-help book that that they would find incredibly palatable that message if you just like insert god into it to me is eastern orthodox christianity it's very simple it's very heartwarming it's very loving and it's very complete and to me it seems like the the line kind of moving from augustine and reason and logic and complicating all of these matters and screwing everybody up so that they constantly like answer the wrong questions build a foundation create new questions that have to be answered they create new questions that have to be answered all of these like illogical presuppositions that lead people to be like, all right, screw all of this Where it's all about reason, logic. There's no God and whatever, whatever. Like you don't need.
0: this is a hell of a drug.
1: <laughs> no joke, <laughs> no joke. And you don't need any of that, right? You can actually have a very similar mindset to the person who just wants to be a good person and just tune it just a little bit in another direction and you'll realize how naturally programmed you are to do this and that is very freeing but it's also very terrifying because once you realize how easy it is, you have no excuse not to do it and that's the mm. position that i find myself in
0: once you realize how easy it is it dawns on you just how hard it is mm. yeah that's a that was that's a that's a really really compelling framing it's it's funny that my so I made the comment about scholasticism and I just did that just to get primarily to get Andrew riled up because I know that it will. Um, <laughs> but like that, that, that is, there's, there's some some kind of some truth behind it though, but that, that, that's where really um, if, if Augustine is where things started getting hairy, then it really took off in the direction you're talking about with somewhere between Anselm and Aquinas and mm. the rise of scholasticism and really c- correlated tightly with the the birth of the printing press and the idea suddenly of ideas becoming something that are attached to books that that the common man can read, that anybody can have access to these ideas. And therefore we need to have institutions that are responsible for parsing all the nitty gritty details of these ideas. Like some of those, some of those, the development of something like scholasticism you don't really get in a uh, in a culture that primarily passes on knowledge through storytelling mm. because you don't have the you don't have the the need to approach a story like uh, an 18th century German philosopher needing to parse and delineate everything to the nth degree. I mean, that's how the Bible was written. The Bible was written as a storybook. Mm-hmm. The Bible was not written as a history book. That doesn't mean that it's not telling a true history. That doesn't mean that it's not conveying truth about science or philosophy or history or any, any other number of things. But it wasn't written for that purpose. It was written as a story. It was written as a narrative describing God's interactions with his chosen people in reality and the experience that those people had with God and, and, and them saying, if you want to have these same experiences, here's the thread to start pulling on, start drawing on this, align yourself with this way of being, and you'll start having the same experiences that we did. It's funny that you, you had the, the, um the experience that you did, that you came at it the way you did because I came from a pretty different perspective but I wound up at a very similar spot. My <clears throat> I I got into orthodox christianity because um I'd been raised christian like you were not not catholic quite the opposite. Um <laughs> I was I was raised uh, like extreme seventh day adventist, very devout devout anti-catholic. But I was basically the same growing up I had most of the Bible memorized just from, from actively memorizing verses and, um, just by default from reading it so much and spending so much time in the church and listening to it being read and, and, but it was very, it was very hollow and it had no life. And then there was just so much, um, so much hypocrisy and, and stuff within the church that just didn't, just didn't square for me just didn't make sense and i wanted it to make sense and i started throughout my 20s i i was kind of drifting toward eastern mysticism because and it wasn't from a desire for something mystical as much as it was at least consciously as much as it was wanting to understand reality I wasn't looking to escape reality. I was looking to understand it. And I was realizing the deeper that I got into, um, you know, anthropology led me into biology, led me into chemistry, led me into into physics, led me into quantum mechanics. And as I was getting into quantum mechanics, I was like, all right, this is like maxing me out. Like, I I can't, I can barely keep this stuff in my head. I, I can't wrap my mind around it. But, as I was listening to physicists describing quantum mechanics, I was like, "These guys sound like Alan Watts. This sounds like like Eastern mysticism. and that and Eastern mysticism is a whole world that I have no familiarity, no awareness of i don't I don't I, I don't even know what they talk about. So I started going in that direction just to find out. It was actually Naval Rabiant was one one big, influence in on me in that direction because he would talk about like Krishnamurti and, um and Osho and some of these guys and a lot of what they said really resonated, uh, especially the um a lot of the paradoxes and being comfortable with holding two opposing ideas in your mind and not having to throw out one in favor of the other, mm-hmm. being able to just retain both of them and hold on to both of them. And someone, a number of people kind of in a row all started talking to me about orthodoxy. And they were like, you might like orthodoxy based on some of the stuff you're talking about because it's basically like Christianity, but mystical. (laughs) And I was like, okay, so I'll go check it out. Just start listening to stuff about it. And that's one thing that you really start encountering a lot within orthodoxy is there's a lot of paradoxes. It's, it's, and and using, using, uh, scholasticism as an example orthodoxy is not scholasticist but that doesn't mean that it's not scholastic there's lots of scholastics within orthodoxy that was what some people get into it for and like like you said you're you're drawn to like the practical simplicity of it which it has it is very practically simple it's it's almost like it's It's simultaneously eternally simple and eternally complex, Mm -hmm. which is actually could be a pretty good way to describe God. So there's probably no no coincidence there. Mm -hmm. But to me, the part that attracts me is the complexity of it, the depth and the color and the richness. And it's like, no matter how deep you dig there, you're never going to reach the bottom. There's more to dig into. And those ideas I don't think stand in opposition to one one another. It is just as simple and practically straightforward as you described it. It's also it, like eternally complex and and nuanced and detailed and there's depth to it that you can plumb for for all eternity.
1: It's something interesting that um <clears throat> that Ben Armani brought up on a, a conversation I believe he's having with Mark Claire and, and Pete Quinonez a while back um, that, that I really resonated with me because it was a very similar experience. You know, ha- having gone through my Aleister Crowley, Golden Dawn Kabbalah days and having explored Sufism and, you know, whatever. I went through all of that, you know, just mostly academically, but some of it I thought was interesting to try in reality, but I never went super far. But having done ayahuasca and and done hallucinogens numerous times, um, listening to Vin talk, he said <clears throat> he had a very similar experience. You know, and, and many of us have listeners have um, that if you were to mention something like that to kind of like a Catholic or a Protestant, the the overwhelming response would be like that didn't happen, right? That that's neurons firing in your brain. That's made up. There's a logical explanation for this. Science has an explanation for this. Oh, the reason that you're all seeing the same tree gnome is because this neuron fires this way and this chemical glucose goes to this thing. And if you mention that very same, uh, those very same experiences to an Orthodox priest, their initial response is generally don't do that. Don't do yeah. that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there, there's a, there's a home for that in Orthodox Christianity. And just to make this very clear for anyone listening, it's not like they develop that as a result of, you know, evaluating a particular situation and trying to come up with a response to it. It's always been there. It's always been there. And that is what I think is is really interesting. It's not they're not thinking through modern problems over the last two thousand, three thousand, four thousand years and developing answers for them. The answers come natural. It's sort of like if you're back in like libertarian brain, right? If somebody asks you, what do you think about taxation? Taxation is theft, right? It's just like Mm. it's right there. but that comes from somewhere. Whereas the Orthodox Church, it's an eternal message that still has an answer for you. But a lot of the time, I think the questions that we ask of it, they're very modern Western questions that it isn't like they couldn't be answered. But the question itself and the point of asking a lot of questions is almost irrelevant to an almost um, a blind spot or a hindrance or roadblock to get you there. So What I often find when, and I I love doing this because I'm a trivia freaking nerd, right? I nerd out on, I've nerded out on Christianity for, you know, 30 out of my 40 years. I just love the trivia part. And people will ask, you know, what about this? What about this? What does Orthodox Orthodox Christianity say about this? What does it say about that? And you can kind of answer those questions, but at the end of the day, it's like, but it doesn't ask those questions, right? It can provide you an answer, but it would probably most people would probably say like, there's no reason to stress over these things. Like, why do you need an answer to this particular, you know, irrelevant thing that you want to know? And I, it comes from this idea that I think that God is trying to punish you constantly for everything. Like the, whether or not this, this was actually taught to me in Catholic school. It's, it's what I remember. So that's all that matters. Right. And, And it's, you, you know, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden for sinning. Um, they're damned for eternity. You're damned for eternity. Um, the best you can do is do all of these material things to try to earn your way back, to to pay your penance and earn your way back. So you go to heaven instead of going to hell. And it's a very unloving message for whatever reason. And, you know, there's probably 40 hours of conversation to get into how this actually develops. Which we could do you know, over time, but yeah, definitely. Um, th- that's that's what sort of the message is, and then you have somebody like like Luther come along, and he takes that logical presupposition, and then tries to figure out how because he's like a we don't have to get into a long conversation about Luther, a very tortured neurotic individual, right? And he he is basically killing himself trying to get into heaven, and then he goes. I don't have to do any of those things. It's just faith. It's just faith. Look, it says it right there. And then all of these like overwhelming, you know, concerns of punishment are just gone and he's liberated. However, that's not Christianity either. It's just curing your neuroses by finding a (laughs) loophole. It's finding a loophole out of a completely illogical presupposition to begin with. It's sort of like, if you cut your, somebody cuts their arm and it's like bleeding really bad and you just take like a bunch of uh, dirt and fungus and shove it in there to heal it. You're like, there I healed it. And then like unbeknownst to you two days later, that person dies. Right. And then you go on continuing to think that that's like a proper way to heal people and then just keep killing them over and over and over and over and over again. When because
0: the-, the, the Lutheran healing is like baked into the, the, the presupposition of it's just faith hmm. is that, deep down inside, you are irredeemably evil. You are irredeemably, eternally, permanently evil. And that the only thing that can be done for you is God papering over that and saying, technically you're still evil, but legally you're not evil anymore. But the effects, the psychological effects of retaining that in your subconscious, of retaining that knowledge that if it wasn't for the grace of God, if it wasn't for Him, you know, making a legal, uh, uh, just a, a legal exchange and putting a check mark in the right column, deep down inside, there's still this latent evil in me. I'm latently fundamentally evil. There's so many theological concepts downstream from that that are it. It, it turns into like what you described—an infection that is gonna rear its head again eventually down the road. When you have this baked in dialectic of I am evil, God is good, and something has to happen to to change that. Something has to happen to change the fact that I am permanently irredeemably evil and God is good and I am set in opposition to him unless some legal mechanism can be derived that will, that will change that reality. That Western dialectic mindset breeds so many like it starts from a simple misapprehension of reality. And then it breeds just like an infinite number of heresies and, and um, mental illnesses Mm -hmm. that could all be prevented with a simple perspective shift. And like you said, it's simple, but it's also massive at the same time. And, and that a, a way to conceptualize that is that the church is a hospital for sick people. The church is not a a place of condemnation and and finger wagging. That doesn't mean that there's no place for condemnation or finger wagging, Mm -hmm. but that's not what it's for. The church is a hospital for sick people to be healed. And that healing is possible.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And that healing is not a legal technicality. That, that healing is real. That healing is is completely real. This is what, or, like, it's weird to me that orthodoxy is perceived as the mystical kind of woo-woo thing because I'm like, this shit is more real than anything that I've ever encountered. Mm-hmm. This is talking, this is like, orthodoxy isn't just like a, a set of ideas that you have. This is encountering reality in the most direct, tangible sense possible. This is, it's like, if you, if you think of like a, um, like if you're trying to interact with a video game world and you have all these different heads up displays and you keep trying on you like, oh, I'll try this one. So you get this heads up display and you're walking around with it. And, um, you know, everything's going well. You see a big grassy open meadow in front of you and you're walking along and this grassy open meadow and all of a sudden, clunk, you walk into something and you're like, oh shit, this heads up display didn't show me this gigantic tree right in front of me. Oh, this one's defective. Okay, let me find the next one. So and what you're doing is there's a world outside of you and there's your ability to perceive that world. And those two things aren't aligned. So you're trying to find the right heads-up display that will align perfectly with the world out around you. And that's what orthodoxy is. That's what the orthodox phronema is. It's you've put on the proper heads-up display that properly conveys to you the actual nature of the world that you exist in, of the world that you're walking around in and interacting with. So you're no longer experiencing the phenomenon of thinking there's a big, nice, grassy meadow in front of you and walking right into a tree because your heads-up display didn't accurately convey that information to you. That's the most real thing possible, to actually engage with the world as it is. There's nothing that's like woo-woo or mystical about that but again talking about holding paradoxes together it's also incredibly mystical and woo-woo because the, bare, the 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 simple concept of a disparity between metaphysical reality and physical reality that in and of itself is is super woo-woo well
1: I mean yeah right because both and but <laughs> right it, yeah it, it does. You know, it Christianity does a couple of very unique things in human history. And it unlike basically every other religion, which either and mostly is about escaping this body in this world, or in a couple, maybe like Islam is really about like God tells you to do something, you must do it, and then you can escape this world. So it's really all about getting out of here. And even and and maybe this is why. Roman Catholicism was so prone to that idea because it was, you know, the, the Western Roman empire was essentially being invaded by people who fought like that. And so I think that infuses itself into Western Christianity where it kind of, it doesn't adopt paganism, but it does adopt this sort of idea that ultimately the idea is to escape this world. Now they're not going to say it that way, but every indication leads you when you when you watch the behavior and you when you look at the doctrine and then you even look at the reaction to the doctrine even the ev- evangelical doctrines or calvinist doctrines right it really ultimately is about getting out of here getting to heaven as quick as possible the easiest way possible you know to the point where do you accept jesus christ as your personal lord and savior as your golden ticket straight to heaven no matter what right it just it, this is the easiest way to get the hell out of this place and Orthodox Christianity, as far as I can tell, is incredibly unique in, like you said, in describing reality, but also appreciating your place in it, that, you know, if this is the story that you believe, it's a very specific story. You're here on this earth for a reason. You were always supposed to be on this earth for a reason. It's a different reason now, but you were always supposed to be a steward of of earth, of the planet, of the universe, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. And that was always the plan and it's not about escaping here. It's about coming back into the order that you were created for <clears throat> in the first place. And I don't know how that message could not basically resonate with anyone. I mean, it, there's going to be a huge blind spots. They're going to hear Christian, Christian, Christian. And there's just that natural like reaction to that. <laughs> but um, none of this even conflicts with like modern science. And or any science, pre-modern science, modern science, or whatever the hell science is going to be 2000 years from now, if we make it that far. Um, and it, it brings to mind a conversation I was having with um, <clears throat> someone in my extended family and they're Protestant um, pretty, pretty actively. So super, super good people, right. That totally on the right path, but just haven't had all the information presented like any of us. Um, and he was talking about, you know, being swayed over to the idea that the earth is 6,000 years old and basing this on the book of Genesis. And I didn't out, out of, I guess a, a little bit out of sort of taking care of myself to the point where I didn't want to get into it. And then also realizing families around and not wanting to like co-opt the conversation. I didn't really bring this up until later and kind of talked about it in private. But my initial thoughts that I'll, I'll share with you and the listeners. Um, if that's what you're pulling out of that story, you need to n- either not read that story anymore because it's not for you or <laughs> you need to go back and reread that story again. And I'll qualify that by saying everybody who you ever talk to who's a Christian, especially if they're very like a theologian, which I'm not, or like an amateur theologian, which I sometimes claim to be, and <laughs> th- they'll always tell you about the true Christianity. It's, oh, this is this way and every other one is wrong. Um if, if you're reading the book of Genesis and what you take out of it isn't that this is a story that is being told by people who are, we believe inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, who are, who, who are being communicated to by God in a way that they can conceptualize in that moment. Right. Because even believing now that the, the earth is round and the universe is vast, there's other planets in the solar system and the sun is made out of a, it's a thermonuclear reactor. Um, 2000 years from now, people might look back and be like, man, those people in 2022, they, they thought the earth was round. They didn't know it was hexagonal, (laughs) you know, or or what, or whatever, or now we have time travel and it's like, none of that matters. What's what was being communicated to these people, you know, 4,000, 5,000 years ago was in a language they understood. So they were able to communicate it. They were explaining it the best way they could, that there's an order to the universe. Human beings are misaligned from that order. And here is a manual about how to get back into that order. And that's basically it. The entire Bible, I mean, to really distill it down, is a manual on what not to do and what to do if you want to get back into order. And that was very simply kind of what I got when I was like 13 years old. It's like, this seems really simple. Is sometimes historical, sometimes allegorical, sometimes metaphorical, sometimes very literal. But like, not one of those things the whole time that there's an, and and when you, I've had a little bit of pushback when I, when I talk to some people online about this and they're like, well, I don't need a story. I need a reality. And I'm like, no, it's like a, it's like human beings communicating the best they can to describe the actual reality. They're never, we don't know how to describe God or reality. We don't try to do that. Like that's what Aquinas d- d- did, right? We, we don't need to prove everything or explain everything. It's like, This is the best way, you know, where where Jesus talks in parables. He's talking to fishermen, so he uses fish parables. He's talking to farmers, so he uses farmer parables. Like, this is Abraham, this is Isaac, this is Jacob, or somebody would be like, you know, why does Abraham pimp his wife out like so many times? Well, like, because he's human and he makes mistakes, right? Like, the point (laughs) of the story is not that Abraham is like, you know, the icon to follow. The point is he's a human being, he makes mistakes and we can learn from those mistakes if we read the story in order to learn something from it rather than to completely judge everybody, which is exactly what you're not supposed to do. So like I hope that people can like maybe go back and just pick these books up and sort of read them from that point of view. And it's going to be very difficult because a lot of times when you're hearing Protestant preachers or Catholic homilies or sermons, they don't make those connections. Right. Or, or they do, but they, you know, they update it a little bit too much or they make it too palatable. Or I even heard one say that um, the parable of the loaves and the fish or the parable, the story of the loaves and the fishes was really just a way of saying everybody had their own loaves and fishes and they they were hiding them to be selfish. And then they decided to share them because Jesus was being so kind. <laughs> and I'm like, you got come on, dude, like you can pull something out of that, but that's not it. Right. And so there is a truth to these stories. They are true. But did they did God literally create the the world in seven American calendar days, you know, like of 24 hours each in a calendar that was never thought of? It existed. That's silly, right? Like it's silly. But is it true? Yeah, of course it's true. So people say, well, how could it be true and not literal? And it's like, well, this is the phronema that you talk about. This is the different mindset. You have to break yourself if it's got to be this or that. Right. It's got to be this or that in the Western world. I don't have an answer. I have to prove it. I have to have an answer. I have to synthesize these two things together to come up with. It. I, I have to have an answer. And it's like there's an answer. But it requires you to break yourself of this mindset. And if you if you if you haven't lived through the last two years and you don't want to figure out how to break the mindset that you see around you, you are ultimately incredibly dangerous to yourself and mm. to others. So I'll, I'll let that float for a minute and see what you think.
0: (laughs) That, that idea that these things are, um, that the Bible in particular is, um, is true. And it's also a story written from the perspective it's written. It's a true story written from a specific perspective and to read it as a factual detailed, like, um, scientific manual is to misread it. That's actually not, let let me put it this way. The things that we read as factual, scientific, detailed manuals are themselves just stories. Mm. They're not actually factual scientific manuals. And we, we have deceived ourselves into believing that they are because of our excessive, um, uh, faith in the human in human reason, this is a, a lot of this, 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 uh, very scholastic Western approach to reading scripture and approaching scriptural stories is a product of, um, a belief in, um, in like the, the perfection of human rationale and that, Like You're like, I need the answers. I need the actual exact details, as if that's possible. As if it's possible to access and be able to document and prove that these are the exact details of this historical narrative that happened however long ago. There's this hubris that we have that will be like, well, I know the story of Napoleon, because I went and I read it. Okay, so... You read the exact things that happened. Well, of course you didn't. It's not possible to read the exact events as they happened. Mm. What you read was a collection of perspectives. And you're using those collection of that collection of perspectives to try to triangulate what the actual truth was. But the actual truth is lost. You'll never be able to access it. This is a reality of history. And I remember encountering this back, you know, before I I really started just just mainlining red pills. The, The belief that you should distrust anybody who claims to be an objective source. Anybody who says, I have the objective truth about this event is either trying to deceive you or trying to deceive themselves or both. Because there's no such thing as an objective retelling of an event. This is, I mean, it's this is the purpose of juries. Mm. Like we're going to use this collection of people and we're going to bring this collection of, of different witnesses and we're going to compare them all to each other and try to deduce the truth, knowing that there's a margin for error because we're never going to actually be able to uncover it. This is just the way that human stories have always been. It's just that the, the Western scholastic tradition in particular has created this impression of of a um a specific category of truth that is like if we've written something down and enough experts have sanctioned it then it's actually factual and this is this is actually a um there's 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 like this weird spiritual dynamic to it where it's like because enough people have sanctioned this it has ach- achieved a next level um level of truth we've like ascended to another plane of truth that enough of the sanctioned priesthood have said this book is true and accurate therefore you should take every single thing here as a factual retelling of of exact events that's just now it's not reality that doesn't mean it's categorically not the exact factual retelling Mm But, if you're focused on it in that way, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. you're you are um, you're inhabiting a hubristic posture, whether toward yourself or toward the capability of humanity in general, that humanity is somehow able to capture and convey absolute objective truth through right. a subjective lens that that just has never been possible for humans. And it's really clear and obvious that that's the case when you have people just telling stories, like sitting around the campfire telling stories. It's like you take everything with a grain of salt because it's mm-hmm. like, is it factual? Probably not. Is it true? Yeah. But for some reason, when you start writing it into books and then you start having people at at um, uh, pretentious universities stamping, putting their stamp of approval on the thing, suddenly it... it, it um, ascends to a new metaphysical plane of truth. And, um, and then like you out, you outlined downstream from there, you get all kinds of issues because now people have lost sight of what true actually means.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my, even just like last night, I mean, thinking about last night, right now, right. An hour ago, I was talking to my girlfriend. We had two completely different ideas of an incident that happened last night. And Mm -hmm. from both of our perspectives, like once we kind of talked about it for a minute, it was like, okay, well, all right, I get now why you saw it that way. Nothing bad, whatever. But just even that very colloquial kind of anecdotal instance, or I think about, you know, some of the books behind me, there's a top shelf that has some JFK stuff on it. My father was a big, big JFK conspiracy nut. And I don't have all the books. I don't know where they all went, but there was like 15 to 20 books. And every one of them has a completely different theory, even if they kind of agree with each other in some aspects. Not every single instance. Well, Oswald did this, but he wasn't there this day. But he was there this day, and this person saw this from the grassy knoll or whatever. That that if and it, it's it's been said, and you'll know where where it was said. That um, if everybody agreed, then you would know it was made up, right? Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, I've had I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine that I kind of grew up with and and worked with me for for a while in the restaurant industry on on Facebook randomly, maybe like a month month and a half ago. Um, one of the rare times I posted on Facebook and, uh, he'd never heard of Bart Ehrman, but I kind of mentioned Bart Ehrman in the middle of the conversation and people can Google the guy, E-H-R-A Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N, I believe. Um, I said, oh, you sound like Bart Ehrman. I could, I could, I could do this all day, but it's boring. And then he obviously went, he like Googled Bart Ehrman and he came back and he was like, yeah, yeah, I like that guy. He was like, <laughs> thought it was a positive comment, but it was one of those like, oh, you know, Adam, this is a big gotcha, right? You know, there was more than four gospels, right? You know that dumb argument or whatever because you know a bunch of them were written a century later and like also the four gospels don't agree they, they have totally different you no know, not totally different but like there's different aspects of each one because each writer is talking to a particular audience for a particular reason um and then a lot of people will say like the synoptic gospels versus john like why does john leave all this stuff out you know there's obviously there's reasons for that too may have had access to them and was kind of filling in the gaps. He was also much younger than the other apostles. But the point being, if they, if they all agreed exactly, then you would think that they got together and conspired like the same people who are saying they're untrue right now because they're different would be this very same people with the same presupposition saying, well, they're all untrue because they agree with each other because people like Bart Ehrman or these people, they've already decided that they're not going to believe this and Far be it for me to judge somebody who was born Anglican and grew up evangelical to become who he was. I I guess I don't really blame him for that. It's probably like the worst combination of things that could drive you to insanity. But if you're coming to a situation and you're saying, Well, there's no way this is possibly true, then you're the carpenter with the hammer looking for a nail everywhere, right? And and but then people will quote him like that's the true guy. That's the guy because they don't want it if they don't want it to be true either. So Like, obviously, I think Christians come at it with the presupposition that it is true. But if you come at it with the presupposition that it's literally true, then you're also going to get yourself basically what you're going to do is double down on that guy, that Bart Ehrman character or folks like him, and you're going to be answering the wrong questions. And this is sort of the decline from like Luther to Zwingli, Calvin, you know, Butzer all the way, Bollinger, all the way down the line of through the, you know, the Puritans and Anglican Reformation and then the Puritans to here to deism, it's just a constant doubling down on these poor supposition, presuppositions. And so like the worst way to respond to somebody with like Bart, someone like Bart Ehrman is for, you know, an evangelical Christian conservative to be like, no, actually I can prove that this happened because archaeological evidence and like... No, 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 no. Because then you're giving that person's argument. You're validating that person's um, illogical presupposition by even debating him in the first place. And so that's why I'd much rather come on and talk to folks like you. And the the the, the, the aha moment for me with this was when I was talking to um, Jacob, uh, Jacob Daniel, Jacob three, Daniel three <clears throat> from Twitter. I was on his show. I, I love it, dude. Dude's great and really good debater, very knowledgeable about it, about his stuff. Um, I find Protestants generally are knowledgeable for the most part. Like they can pick out verses they know the Bible really well. I love that because it saves me a lot of time. Um, there was a moment where it just clicked about 80% of the way through the interview, and I went, We are not talking about the same thing. I'm talking yes. about something completely different than he's talking about. I remember
0: about. exactly that point. I remember <laughs> listening to it and hearing that. And
1: I think Tommy even like put a meme in the group chat, and he was like, like a snapshot of my face. And he was like, here's the moment where I had to realize that they were, cause we'd been talking for like an hour and a half. And I, and I went I, in my head, I went, Oh, we just wasted an hour and a half. We just totally, I, we could, I didn't even realize it. I was just assuming we were on the same page. And then I went, and then he asked me to talk again. And I really do want to talk. I really do like the guy. And like I said, he's very knowledgeable, but I don't know what anyone would get out of that because I would, we would constantly be not having the same conversation and just I think I would get it, but I don't know if he would get it. And that's the, like no aside, knock on it.
0: Just as an aside, he has he he has changed a bit over the last several months. He's uh, okay. It might it might be an interesting conversation to revisit, given some of his. I'll just say I don't want to air him out too much, but I've just been kind of aware of some of his sympathies as he's as he's kind of progressing and updating the way he thinks about things. But fair and might-
1: just, just to say, if he's listening, it's it's more uh, re- being respectful of his time. Than it is me mm. thinking I'm wasting my time. You know, like I just don't want to drag the kid on for an hour and a half again. And then, you know, like do him a disservice. So that's, that was, that's kind of what I'm good at.
0: Remind me what it was that you just to, to, to kind of put some skin on it, what it was that you realized when you, you realized you guys were were talking past each other. I, I don't remember the exact details of it. I, I
1: don't remember it either. I don't remember it either. Um, and I won't, it I won't. Something, talk about yeah. It
0: was it. something about libertarianism and Christianity. And
1: he, he, I think it had something to do with, um, my, my, you know, our kind of point is that like libertarianism is Christianity without Christ or really anything from the liberal modernist scholastic tradition even is Christianity without Christ. And so I think what clicked for me is he was saying, no, libertarianism and Christianity are like beautifully aligned. And I was like, no, they're complete polar. Like they're are They couldn't be more opposed. And then I went because he's not talking about the same Christianity I'm talking about. Yeah, that Christianity that he's talking about is perfectly aligned with libertarianism, perfectly aligned. And that was where I went. Uh, that's we're not having the same conversation.
0: Yes, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, because it's there's a thing called the word concept fallacy where just because we're both talking about, I've I've mentioned before um, mouth sounds and mind pictures. And just because we're using the same mouth sound doesn't mean we have the same mind picture. Mm. And just because we're both calling the thing Christianity doesn't mean that we have the same thing inside our heads that we're actually referring to. Libertarianism being part of the liberal school is like you can trace its genealogy that it was born out of the scholastic tradition that came from the, it, it, you can, I, I can see the, the um like the tree, the, the generational tree in my head where mm-hmm. you have the great schism and really the East and the West separate. And from there on, they, with some exceptions, they largely don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. They, the East goes about doing their thing and the West goes about doing their thing. and, After that schism, the East more or less remained a functionally cohesive whole. There was no major, was and still hasn't been any major schism over, um, uh, like, no major point where where it departed to where we're now living in different realities. But the West has schismed, like, hundreds or thousands of times over since Mm -hmm. then. Mm Mm-hmm. And each of these little splinter groups is now living in their own little separate reality. And downstream from that, way, 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 way down here, is libertarianism, which is a descendant of those earlier traditions. You never get libertarian, you would never get libertarianism in the East. Right. It would have never arisen in the East. Right. It's functionally and 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 um uh incontrovertibly a child of the western scholastic tradition because it was born from people who were who who grew up in the world that was created by with the same fundamental presuppositions as those earlier traditions so they're you like you can't separate an idea from its parents they Mm -hmm. they, they go together um and you can't understand them without what you can't understand the idea without understanding its parents. and You can't understand the parents without understanding the children, the, the mm-hmm. ideas that are born out of them because they, they each give you, we're talking about the the limited subjective frame of a human being. And like, you're trying to accumulate as many perspectives as you possibly can. This is why a jury is made up of 12 people and not two. You know, it's because we just picked a number. We couldn't have 5,000, you know, so we'll pick a number. But it's because we want to try to get as many different perspectives as possible. So if you're trying to evaluate an idea, you want as many perspectives on that as you can get. And the parents and the children of an idea will tell you, will give you a different angle or different perspective Mm -hmm. at that idea and help you understand it better.
1: I was talking to a a local um, Orthodox uh, priest um, uh, around this area here. And I asked him why Augustine is canonized in Orthodox Christianity. And he gave me an answer, which I'm going to tell you, but I, j- rather than just repeat it without checking it out, I just kind of asked a few other people and kind of went on the internet a little bit too. Um, and it seems to be generally agreed upon that he was sort of canonized, just kind of the West did it. And, um, what I, what I learned in which you, you may already know, uh, Augustine spoke Latin. He didn't speak Greek. The East yep. mainly spoke Greek. They didn't read Latin. So they didn't ever like really know of each other. And we're only talking 400 years, you know, after the the death of Christ. So it's not like 2000 years later. There's already that huge disconnect between the mm-hmm. East and the West that they don't even know what the other ones are writing. And, and this priest said to me that he thinks over time the Orthodox Church will decanonize Augustine. He thinks mm-hmm. when they start reading more and more of his books and they start becoming more um, kind of studied in the by the bishops and the patriarch, or patriarchs, well, I guess patriarchs is the right word, um, that he thinks he'll be decanonized because it, it ends up being such a destructive, it's not like Augusta didn't contribute good things, but the stuff that really got like the three or four things out of the thousands that he came up with are the three or four things that essentially created Western Christianity and then all of the reactions to it. So um, the two things I was thinking about there, The idea of individualism, which is essentially the cornerstone of Western civilization, is not a concept in Eastern Phronema, right? In Individualism. Like there are individuals who have individual goals and responsibilities, but essentially it's it's a very communal kind of way of thinking. And again, for the listeners, it's not like we say East and West, like there's a vertical line that runs through the earth and everybody on this side is Western and everybody on this side is, it's like a more of an Eastern way of thinking, more of a Western way of thinking that developed over time through you know, various socio-political, economic, religious invasions by the Turks, like certain things just happen that sort of make this happen. Um, but that idea of individualism doesn't drive their culture. And so the culture is completely different. Now, many people like may like the idea of living in an individualistic culture where they kind of get to do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt other people and take their stuff. Um, I would just posit, you know, anyone go back and listen to any episode of Pill that you've ever put out or any episode of you're talking over me. I think there's 83 of them Uh, or having just had your any one of your five senses functioning over the last 24 months (laughs) to come to a conclusion that maybe rabbit individualism is not particularly the way forward. If you want to have like a peaceful, cohesive society, but, you know, to each their own.
0: Right. Like, I mean, drag queen story hour and, and, you know, trannies doing lap dances on kids is a product of individualism and, Mm -hmm. and adherent to individualism has no coherent opposition to that type of thing. It's a, and, and as you said, it's, it's, you don't see that type of thing in the, in the East. And that's largely because by and large, and I'm not going to, I'm not, I want to make it clear that we're not saying that everything from the West is bad and everything from the East is good. We're Mm -hmm. speaking in broad strokes here, but the East doesn't fall into these dialectical traps the way that the West does, um, which is partly because the East is much more comfortable. This is something that's true with, with Eastern, um, Eastern cultures in general, not just Eastern Christianity, but Eastern cultures in general are much more comfortable with paradox mm. and being able to just accept two conflicting notions without having to reduce things down beyond a certain point. I mean, within the West, you get things like with the with communion, they start reducing it to okay, it's bread and wine until this exact moment when the priest says these exact words and then it becomes the body and blood right. of Christ. You know the East doesn't do that because it's you 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 can't you can't reduce things down to the atomic level like that and still maintain a coherent frame there isn't a specific moment where it becomes the body and blood of christ and it wasn't before because you don't those existing those individual moments don't exist alone you never get that individual moment standing in isolation it's always connected to the moment before and the moment after just the same with a human being you never get an individual isolated atomized person you, you no person the very idea of an identity shout out lb muniz the very Mm. concept of an identity presumes a community because Mm -hmm. a single isolated atomized person would have no identity there's no purpose the purpose of an identity is to identify you either connected to or distinct from other people Mm -hmm. so the 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 notion of having to um parse between individualism versus collectivism, this is a false dichotomy. There's no such thing as collectivism or individualism. They don't actually exist. What you have are communities of people Mm -hmm. that worship a God or worship many gods. And the Mm -hmm. question is, what God is your community going to worship? And how is that going to be revealed in the individuals who are a part of that community? Because you become what you worship. Whatever it is, you're going to become that. It's going to be born out in your personality, the way you act, your behavior, all of these things. You don't exist as an isolated, atomized person. And trying to build a legal system or a culture on something that doesn't exist is just going to give you a gigantic performative lie, which is essentially what Western society Mm -hmm. has become.
1: Yeah, I mean, you are what you do, right? So if, you know, I, you know, if I want to become a computer programmer, I practice computer programming and eventually I become a really good computer programmer. Like Maybe it's in me naturally, or maybe I have a, a jump start. but you, you do become the things that you constantly do. You, we all use ritual in order to become something. A lot of us do it without thinking about it. But I think what we're kind of trying to move the paradigm to is you can actually choose other rituals over the ones you're doing now, and they will actually lead you to a more positive outcome in life. Like that emptiness, that that God-shaped hole that people are trying to jam materialism into, or even materialisticism into, or just materials if they're weird, you know, (laughs) uh, like (laughs) there's, there's, there's a way you were actually programmed. (laughs) There's a way you were actually programmed where there's something very specific that's supposed to be in there. Right. Mm And it it isn't really an option and everything else you do is going to leave you feeling incomplete and um a, a friend of ours was visiting me the, this past weekend um shout out to that friend chat should we just say is that fair i yeah. think we probably can yeah okay so uh R- rachel came up to to visit on a, on her way back from pork fest and um she was talking about like islam and judaism and buddhism and the various aspects of hinduism and all these other like global religions and huge religions and stuff and she said you know is there a place for this do you think in you know, people who are the, those things or identify as or are part of those religious communities, you know, obviously, they're probably, quote unquote, better off than, you know, somebody worshiping Walmart. I mean, I, w- I would think so. Um, but how would I equate the two? How would I look at it? And I said, I think I think there are many religions are kind of like. Tuned into something similar, but it's a corrupted or incomplete version of it. So they won't get the certain sense of belonging to natural order the way that you will in this particular aspect. There, there may be there are better aspects of certain things than others, or different ways of looking at the universe. And you know, I think even like paganism or demonic worship or Ouija boards is a way of tapping into something. It's all real, you know. It's just a matter of is it one hundred percent evil? Or is it just an incomplete way to try, again, try to escape the world? Um, I thought that was really interesting. But I was thinking when you were talking about identity, uh, just to date myself a little bit, I was thinking about the late 90s and like everybody was, you know, um, a rebel and trying to be themselves and different from everybody else. But really, you were like a BMXer, a skater, an Abercrombie guy like you. You always fell into a group, a community. Nobody, I can't think of one person I've ever met in my life who was like so rapidly individual, rabidly individualist that I couldn't think of another person who was just like them, you know, that unique. I mean, Christ, I've never met him, but you know, I, any human being living in the world that's so unique, you can't be like, oh yeah, I've seen a version of that somewhere, you know? So that's, um, I think that's kind of interesting, Thoughts on the the incompletion of other religions or whether or not they might be on a similar journey, but not quite.
0: Even the people who would, um, be like, eventually you get the people who are like, so individualistic, they're so unique and so special that they all look the same. The ones who try to be, there's something about, uh, shout out to Jason with the two bit podcast. He would, he would, uh, he'd love this, um, there's a Girardian mimetic thing there where um, we all become what we desire and we desire things based on what we see other people desiring. So there's this natural mimetic instinct in all of us where we we just naturally, we, like we don't know what to do with ourselves. We don't know how to behave. You see this with babies. Babies naturally just mimic what they see with other people. And it just becomes a, um, that, that, that tendency continues. It persists throughout the, throughout the life of a person. Like people naturally just mimic the people who have the life that they want to have just look at them and they're like, well, okay, that person there, they have all the things that I want. So we have this natural instinct that like, well, okay, if I start acting like that person, then I'll get the things that they have that I want. We just, it just kind of, we're naturally wired or programmed that way. Mm -hmm. So even the kids. You'd have the kids that were like, oh, well, I don't I don't fit in with anybody. I'm the total, I'm the I'm the complete outcast that has nothing in common with any of you guys. And all, all those kids would all look the same. They would all look and dress and act the same. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, okay, you're now embodying the archetype of the loner outcast. Even the loner outcasts all look the same. They all have the same general characteristics. Um, the question of of uh about the uh, other religions, this is kind of funny because i was uh, I was going for a walk this morning with Amy and Eastwood, and we were talking about schools and talking about that's how much I want to say here. We were talking about the prospect of taking over school districts and being able to take control of school districts at the local level and and have like mandate Christian curriculum, like mm-hmm. mandating curriculum for teaching like Christian a Christian worldview and Austrian economics at the local level hmm. and how like how that would work and 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 that sort of thing. And and she was like, well what about, you know, what if you want to have like like what if Jews want to have, you know, schools for Judaism or Muslims want to have schools for Muslims? And I was like, they're welcome to send their kids to the Christian school. Or they can go get their own town and they can <laughs> take over that town and they can have their their schools there, but in a Christian town, we're going to have Christian schools, and we're going to teach our kids Christian values, and that's how it's going to be. And if you, if you, if you, if you take the the say the or the Orthodox telling of reality as at at face value, each of these other religions is quite literally built around the worship of demons that have like actual entities that are um, accepting human worship because they've, they've um, departed from their duty, from their responsibility to the most high God. And they've begun accepting worship that's naturally intended for him for themselves. And I suppose the the ones that have persisted the longest that seem the most, there's there's something to the idea of lendy, lendiness, that stuff that mm-hmm. has lasted for a long time will yeah. will last for a long time. And something that's lasted for a long time necessarily must be close to the truth because things that are super far removed from the truth, just by definition, don't last. So the religions that have been around for the longest time, I think are, they must necessarily have more truth to them than the ones that don't at the same time, the most deceptive lies are the ones that are 99% truth. Mm-hmm. I tweeted something about this recently, or I said that, um, that good is a hundred percent good and evil is 99% good. Mm. And so, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I don't have a direct answer for you, It's just probably because I'm uncomfortable because I kind of know what the answer should be and I'm probably uncomfortable saying it. Well,
1: well, I mean, evil has been around, you know, a couple seconds. God's been around a couple seconds longer than evil, right? So, Hmm. I mean, just, yeah, you're right. Just because something is, let's say, completely demonic doesn't make it any less true. It just makes it terrible. So I think that's, you know, when we look at like the ultimate goal of religion or the ultimate goal of even secular humanism, really like what its ultimate goals are, they're not ultimately happy ones. And we don't really need to get like giddy about what the word happy means. Like you kind of know when you're complete as a human being and when you're incomplete. Um, And so, yeah, I think, yeah, maybe that's a, that's a good place to kind of hold on. I don't want to like bother our Buddhist friends or our.
0: Right. Right. You know, I'll say this. I have, I have a direction we can take this. Um, we were, it, it ties in, we were talking earlier about the kind of the, the product of Luther's kind of the, the latent presuppositions in Luther's sola fide doctrine, that are, are, which is that basically humanity is irredeemably evil, that mm-hmm. humanity at its core is fundamentally evil. You even have this borne out in, in Calvinism's doctrine of total depravity, where they actually make this, they formalize this in in a doctrine. Mm-hmm. And there's there are massive massive theological issues with this because th- what this is really born out of is is okay I need to, I need to I need to back up even further. So I get all these thoughts that all connect mm-hmm. themselves at once. So there's this notion that eastern christianity is like ooh it's all the woo woo mystical stuff where everyone just kind of sits around and goes usa and stuff and then <laughs> In the West, everything is very rig- rigorous and academic, and that's it. Couldn't be further from the truth, because if you go read the Church Fathers, if you go read um, the Cappadocian Fathers, or you go read Gregory Palamas, like these are these are rigorous philosophers. These are not like lazy woo woo thinkers. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's the concept of a nature and a concept of a person, and these are distinct things. I think it was. St. John of Damascus, I think, who said that every heresy is born from confusing or not making the proper distinction between nature and person. Mm. So a we as human beings, we have a nature. We, we share in a common nature of being human, but we are separate persons. We are separate expressions of that nature. Our, our personhood and our nature are distinct facets of who we are. We share person we share nature, a nature, we share human nature, but we don't share personhood. I have my personhood, you have your personhood. The the notion of total depravity confuses person and nature because for something to be evil in its nature There's only two things that are possible. Either God created something that is fundamentally evil in its nature or God changed something into something that was good into something evil in its nature Hmm. because natures don't change by definition. By definition, the nature of a thing is the thing that is that thing. It's the thingness of that thing. So to say that humanity when humanity fell, somehow we became irredeemably evil in our nature. I guess not technically irredeemably. That wouldn't be fair to them. We became completely and totally evil in our nature is to presume one of those two things. Either way, you're accusing God of creating evil. And God did not create evil because everything God created was good. In fact, he said that. Said that at the end of the creation account, he beheld everything that he created and he said, It's all good. Everything that exists is good because evil does not exist. Evil does not have ontological status. Evil does not have existence. Evil is a negation of the good. Evil is the absence of the good. So our persons can choose evil, but that does not make us evil in our nature. Our nature is still fundamentally good because our nature was created by God. And this is a difficult, um, this is a difficult truth to, to reckon with, to, to wrestle with because of some of the implications. But ultimately to me, it's like the thing you said earlier, where it's very, um, it's very simple, mm. but it's also really complex, but it's very freeing once you realize the actual implications of it, that that we are, human nature is fundamentally good. And we are, the church is a hospital for sick people. The, 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 the idea of a hospital is that healing is possible. So if we were fundamentally evil, then there's no point in a hospital for fundamentally evil. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It -hmm. only makes sense if it's possible to be healed and it is possible to be healed. You can go to the, the hospital for healing and you can partake in the prescription for healing. And this, this completely blows the faith versus works dichotomy out of the water. Right. Because you don't go do these things because the works are what are going to save you. You go do these things because doing these things heals you. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like you take the medicine because the medicine is going to heal you. You don't take the medicine because there's some sort of salvific ontological quality to the action of taking it that will heal you. It's because the medicine goes into your body and helps your body heal itself. This is the same thing with, with works. Mm. The so-called works are the things that you do because the very literal act of doing them heals your actual self. Right. This is like orthodoxy is so grounded and down to earth and real. There's, there's, there's nothing mystical about it at all. Mm. And, and yet it's, it's completely mystical.
1: Yeah. And, and less people think that we're, Showing them like in a third option here, it we won't do it on this show because it'll take too long. But I will eventually, when I listen back to this later, and you may do it as well, um, start building on kind of where I want to go based on our conversation here. And um, there's a pretty strong argument, and I, I'll say it's 100%, but you know, pretty strong argument that this has pretty much always been the message, and that the people who diverted from this path are Rome and the Protestant revolution doubling down on really bad presuppositions from Rome. And Augustine and maybe some other folks right around that era, that era.
0: By the way, I love Protestant revolution. I love that
1: that me. that they like just went they just went in a completely different direction. So I think what you would get from them, they would tell you they've evolved their thought. Right? The Catholic Church, of course, reason is part of the Catholic Church. It's not part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, it's not like they don't use reason and logic, but it's not a, it's not canon where in, in the Roman Catholic Church, the idea of reason and enlightenment and thought and rationalizing through things is part of canon. So it's built in to their system, but it wasn't from the get-go. So they would probably say this is like, um, this is not necessarily like a, a miscalculation on, on our part to say this. They would probably say, no, that's part of it is we grow and we think and we rationalize and we work through these things together. And then the Protestant People did the same thing. They're working through things and rationalizing. So I, you know, I imagine that some of them might look back at, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy and be like, "Well, they just haven't figured this stuff out yet. They're just way back there, and eventually they'll come to these same logical conclusions." And it's like, well, but if you follow the consequences of your logical conclusions, like you, the the difference between where you are in modern America and where you are in the Eastern Orthodox Church existing right down the road from you currently in modern America are so completely different that you go, okay, well, they're not reconcilable, right? There's no way like the Orthodox church is going to c- come into communion with the Catholic church. And they don't even really think Protestants are really Christian. So like, it's not that we're damning anybody. I mean, for all I know, Billy Graham's going to go to heaven before, you know, the patriarch of Constantinople, Like, who knows? We, we don't know. Right. But okay. So you look at that, that, Total polar opposite thing going on. And you go, well, which one of those things fits reality, order, and actually heals me? And one of them does, and one of them doesn't. Right. That's me doing a little Hegelian dialectic here for for everybody. Right. One of those things does this, and the other thing doesn't do this. So if you want to just put it into practice, go do one, then go do the other, and come back and tell me which one doesn't make you necessarily feel better but when you really allow it to like absorb into your body through osmosis and your soul and your mind and your, you know, the noose as well. Um, that's not, by the way, for listeners, a thing found in that like NASCAR driver's garage. It's totally different. It's like part of the soul and the mind, the noose. I was going
0: to mention that when you were talking about reason within Catholicism, because, because hmm. yeah, because orthodoxy doesn't have a doctrine of reason, which is, which is kind of cause like if you, if you asked an orthodox person, well, do you, do you have that like, like, like dogmatized, It'd be kind of mm-hmm. like no like why would we that'd be kind of be kind of silly to to treat it that way but by the same token the west doesn't have the concept of the noose it doesn't like it doesn't exist anywhere in the west which is partly why the idea of the phronema is kind of difficult to to convey to a western mind as well because the phronema and the noose are are very closely um Uh, intertwined Mm -hmm. because having or, or developing or, or being gifted the Orthodox phronema is part and parcel with the, the, like the cleansing and the development of your noose. The idea with the noose for just quick and dirty is that there is a part of your, the, the Orthodox, I mean, the, the, the translation, the closest thing would be mind, but that has all sorts of baggage with it in the West. Now that, it just there isn't a word to accurately convey it, but it's something like, um, the part of your uh, psyche that is optimized for speaking with God. That that there is part mm-hmm. of your mind that is optimized for being directly connected to God, and for God to connect and speak to you, and you to speak to Him, and that is the noose, and the noose gets clouded and corrupted and calcified and ossified and um you know there's there's a lot of kind of there's there's tie-ins there's connections to the um pineal gland there's hmm. like if you look at like eastern paganism there's a lot of the stuff with with the pineal gland there's some overlap with the the orthodox conception of the noose but the 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 orthodox conception of the noose isn't as uh um Like it's not like an actual organ of your body. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a it's a a, like a spiritual concept, but it's a very real thing that you each of us has a noose, and there's specific activities and behaviors and stuff that you can take that will or you can participate in that will that will degrade and corrupt your noose and will will cut you off or disable you from being able to really functionally connect with and and commune with God. And so all of the so-called works are directed at prayer and fasting and almsgiving and receiving the eucharist and all of these sorts of things they're not things that you do because god is wagging his finger at you and if you don't do them then you're damned it's mm-hmm. that those are the this is how you are this is how you are saved like this is the mechanism whereby if you want to reduce it to a mechanism these are the things you do because they're good for you because they heal you because they optimize you, they tune you into being able to connect to the right wavelength to be able to directly commune with God. You have to participate in these types of behaviors because if you don't, then just, it's like, if you don't run wind sprints, then you won't be able to run wind sprints. It's just kind of like, Mm -hmm. it's not that running wind sprints somehow makes you spiritually deserve to be able to run wind sprints. It's that, the fact that you ran wind sprints means that you optimized your body and your mind to have the endurance and the and the, ca- the capability to run wind sprints it's the same same type of concept with the the so-called works within orthodoxy right.
1: and and to just throw a bone to our pro- protestant friends um, what what luther's seeing of course is the same thing that christ saw with the pharisees right the, mm-hmm. the, well it's actually not quite the same thing but it's the same idea There are people who, so the Pharisees are, are, are doing the law. They're like living to the very code of the law, but not in their hearts or in their souls. Right. Right. They're just doing the action. And what in contrast, or sort of in communion, what what Luther is seeing in the early 1500s is the Catholic church not even doing that. Like they're not even putting on airs or following the law. They're in positions of control essentially ruling over the world and condemning people and they're buying and selling political offices, they're buying and selling indulgences. So from his particular literal mindset coming from the neurotic place that he's in and he's torturing himself for his first, you know, 30 years of his life, he looks at these people and he's like, well, that's why works don't matter because look at all these things they're saying. And they're, you know, so obviously that's not true, but but rather than go back and realize, you know, that, yes, you're right. The Roman Catholic Church is very much corrupt and they're embedding in the government and they're doing all of these evil, horrific things to people and, you know, messing with your eternal soul, really. It's like, incredibly dangerous. Rather than go back and, and see where he should have gone with that, it was, a you know, a reaction. So uh, I just pulled this up real quick so folks could see. So noose, N-O-U-S, and I had typed up earlier something just in case this came up. Um, the highest faculty in man through which provided it is purified, he knows God or the inner essences or principles and, um, can be defined as the eye of the heart or soul or the mind of the heart. So it's yes, very hard to like literally translate into English, but definitely, um, did de- definitely in a quote unquote spiritual organ that we don't, um, that we need to really work hard to get some wind sprints out of. Mm hmm. Um, so maybe we could, unless you want to you uh, have a couple topics that you wanted to bring up, I had something I kind of wanted to kind of wanted to make sure we fit in here before we ended. Was there any particular topic on your mind that we didn't touch before I kind of ask you this question?
0: I don't think so. No.
1: Okay. So here is, um, here's something I've been playing around with in my head a lot. So until about what's the right before World War I, when um, the East is basically kind of liberated from Ottoman Turkish rule. And they're able to actually, rather than hand write, hand copy every Bible or liturgy book that they have, now they have access to the printing press. And now like all of a sudden, a hundred years later, starting probably about 10 years ago, Orthodoxy is now being communicated even by you and I to a Western audience and hopefully marginally well, (laughs) you know, um, do you, do you think that what the Eastern Orthodoxy will help heal the West? Or do you think the West, and by this I mean the Western Fronema, that the West will end up infecting Eastern Orthodoxy, taking it over and destroying it? Or do you think maybe somewhere in the middle? Do you think that Orthodox Christianity has a chance of actually reaching people to the point where it changes Christendom, it changes the culture? Or do you think it will end up being infected to the point where it ends up the same way Catholicism did?
0: Hmm. That's a good question. I've been, I've been wrestling with something a lot along these lines for the last several months. And it's, it's partly why I haven't really been, been kind of talking a lot about this stuff in public because I, number one, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm reticent for people to see me as an authority on, on orthodoxy and, you know, someone who speaks for the church or anything like that, which. I mean, over the last hour and a half, we've spoken very authoritatively on a lot of this stuff. So I realized that that could come off as, um, I don't know, trying to have my cake and eat it too, or something like that. And, and I, like, I want to, I have this instinct that when I start to understand something, I'm like I get it now. I'm the foremost authority on this. I want everybody else to see it the way I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm recognizing that instinct in myself. And so I'm I have to catch myself because I would love to to go off on a lot of this stuff and and really try to paint myself as the authority publicly and I so I'm 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 actively trying to countervail that that instinct. At the same time, I came from a tradition that is very eschatologically, not scatologically, eschatologically um obsessed. I was a uh, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, which is I mean Advent is in the name. It's mm-hmm. very obsessed with all things second coming, the end of time, prophecy and so I have a lot of baked in assumptions about the end times that I'm having to revisit and try to unwind and figure out how much of this stuff is real. How much of it is tied to these old bad ideas that I used to have. And so for me, I'm like, I'm kind of obsessed with trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future, Mm -hmm. both, near future and long-term, both just out of curiosity and to try to figure out how I need to act accordingly. And and it's interesting. I was having this conversation yesterday in the the Kingpill Discord. We did a, a voice chat with a group of the guys, and, and we were talking about this idea of the Whig view of history. Mm-hmm. And um, most people, I'm sure, who are listening to this are probably going to be aware of what that is, essentially the notion of perpetual progress and um, the fact that we live in the future compared to people in the past makes us smarter and better and well, edu- more educated and and uh, essentially better off that man is is perpetually evolving and um it's t- closely tied with with technology being seen as a as a de facto good and um et cetera. And what's interesting is a thought kind of occurred to me that there is speaking of dialectics, there's a a, a correlatory effect here where, a lot of people in rejecting the Whig view of history have begun espousing the anti-Whig view of history, which is essentially the exact opposite, that everything is getting worse and worse. It's going to continue to get worse and worse. We're on a perpetual downward trend, and you know we're, we're spiraling to, toward the end of the world, and it's time to just bat down the hatches and wait for the fire and brimstone to start pouring from heaven. And I, being the skeptic of dialectics that I've, I've become, I have a natural instinct. So, so the anti-Wig view of history is close. That's a pretty kind of quick and dirty way to describe the the seventh day Adventist view of the end of time, Mm. that things are just going to get worse and worse. So that's kind of what's baked into me is just kind of a, a natural pessimism about, this world and this life and that um you know the, the goal of a Christian is to be is to remain unsullied by the world and uh essentially just kind of ride out the the um like ride out the tsunami of the end of time and you know the the end of time is coming at any point and things are just gonna get worse and worse and it's gonna be absolute chaos and and it's gonna be the, the point of greatest darkness and blackness and that's when you know, the light will show on the, in the Eastern horizon and Jesus will, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so I'm now like, I'm trying to figure out how much of those conceptions of the end of time that I've had are a product of these old flawed traditions of mine mm-hmm. and how much are actually like, how much of them do I need to retain and how much do I need to get rid of? And I go back and forth between this. I go back and forth between, you know, things are just going to keep getting worse and worse. The orthodoxy is just entering a time of great trial and persecution, like the communist revolution on steroids happening on a global scale. And, um, you, you know, we need to be ready to hunker down and, you know, protect ours and, you know, be ready to die for what we believe in. And alternatively, that there's no reason to believe that the end of time is now. Mm. Like, like we live in the end of time. Like, we live in the final days by dint of the fact that we live after the time of Christ. Because, like, the apostles believed that they lived in the end times. And they did. The, The church has existed for 2000 years living in the end times we're in Mm -hmm. the end times, but there's, I don't think there's a particular reason necessarily to believe that, you know, the end times means in the next 10 to 50 years, any more than it could mean the next 500 to 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to believe necessarily that, you know, the end is, is nigh. Versus we're going through the same cycles of history that have happened before. I mean, you mentioned the 1,000-year the period from 500 to, to 1,500. Right about that 1,500 point, you'd had a time of a lot of, of strife and chaos and warfare. You'd had the Crusades. You'd had a lot of, of factional war going on in Europe. And they were just starting to venture out further and began exploring a new world. And it was like, we've grown too much for this existing area here. We've outgrown this area. Let's see what's out on the far distant horizon. And so there was people who were taking months and years long voyages to a far and distant land and encountering a whole new world and populating it with, with their ideas and their people and kind of starting the world over again and now here we are and you know if you want to believe that space is real then we're we're right on the cusp of beginning an exploration feeling like we've outgrown the world that we live in and beginning an exploration into a whole new world and so like I, i I guess I'm kind of non-committal right now. I don't know which direction to to anticipate. I don't know whether I could see things easily getting dark, getting really dark. I could also see like, you know, the collapse of the Roman empire was a dark and difficult time, but out of it arose a lot of really good stuff. There was a lot of great things about the collapse of the Roman empire, specifically Christian monarchies arose all over europe and throughout the the east as well and there was a there was a great time of, of prosperity for a lot of people the same thing could be coming for us it could also be you know the collapse of the british empire which yielded two world wars and millions of people dead so so i don't know i can't, am i allowed to be noncommittal?
1: Yeah, of course, of
0: course. Well, I, I'm actually,
1: I, I'm even probably worse than non-committal. I don't even care, right? So for, yeah, for for me, it's like <clears throat> thinking about r- aside from really nerdy conversations that I like to have about you know eschatological times and such. Um, it's as worth for me. It's as worth worrying about as it is whether or not when I walk out of my front door I'm going to get hit by a bus. And then <laughs> so I never leave my house because I'm so terrified of getting nice hit. Callback. By- There's the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to loop it around right <laughs> um but yeah i mean honestly like it, it's the there's so little focus on that in orthodoxy and i think it's because it's it's such a distraction from if you're it's a for for me it's a very west western way of thinking to think that and or western religious way of thinking that um to just constantly plan on how to get out of here Hmm. And maybe I was part born this way too. So I'm a little bit like more receptive to it than a lot of people. But the, the idea that you can really just sort of enjoy your day, enjoy your life and enjoy what's around you and be glad you have it. And I wasn't always, you know, I kind of broke myself with that for about 20 years and got like really focused on stupid shit that made me very unhappy. And when I took a step back and relaxed and like pulled myself out of all that, to just go for a walk or go for a hike or go for a drive or just talk to other people and get to know other people. Not everybody, because some people are lunatics, but mo- you know, most people I can get to know a little bit. And uh, um, <clears throat> I think that's more of, of kind of how I, if I'm going to be the one as an amateur theologian here to to kind of give any advice, it's if what you're getting out of your religion or your belief system, your way of life is paralyzing you to being comfortable, and I don't mean comfortable, like lazy, like really being comfortable with yourself and who you are and what you're doing. If if what you're what you believe in doesn't give you that, then you stop doing that. Just stop. And I'm not talking to you specifically, Matt, but like mm-hmm. in general, it's if it, you know when something's hurting you and when it isn't. And m- most times people will continue to do the things that hurt them because they're used to it. It's very easy to just it, if you're an alcoholic, it's very easy to just keep drinking. Stopping drinking. Is very, very difficult. Like I smoke cigarettes, stopping smoking. Actually, I could stop. I've done it before kind of cold turkey, but I like it. I don't know why I like it. I think I like it because I don't have to accomplish anything when I'm smoking a cigarette. I can sit outside lazily and stare at the sky and just go like this. It's not good. It's not mentally healthy. It's not physically healthy. So there are all things that we need to break out of. And you know, um, kind of like you said, I, I don't want to ever put myself in a position where I'm trying to play with somebody's mortality or play with somebody's, you know, eschatological beliefs. Like, I, I don't want to put that in anybody, but I think it's worth throwing these ideas out there and letting people kind of digest them because I, I would err on the side of talking people out of any, all of this, like it, bat it around in your head, but I don't want you to walk into an, an Orthodox church, like, unless you feel like Christ is there. You know, if you don't feel like you're being called there, it's not a tourist attraction. You know, there should be a reason that you're going there because you could be doing real spiritual damage to yourself or to other people. Um, and I certainly don't want to be responsible for that. So um, kind of like there's there's passages in the Old Testament where it's sort of said, like, if you don't know if it's an angel or a demon, err on the side of it being a demon. Right. Like, mm-hmm. just assume it is. And then if it isn't, like the angel will be like, no, it's OK. You did the right thing. You, you know, you should have assumed it was bad. So I think that's the best advice like lay people can kind of give other lay people is, you know, if it if it doesn't resonate with you, OK, like it resonates with me and it resonates with me for the reasons that we we laid out. And I, I think it resonates with you. And maybe we'll do another show another time about politics and monarchies, because we, we tend to agree on a lot, but I don't know if we'd agree a hundred percent on that stuff. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'd wondered if we were going to get into that today. So we should, yeah, we should have him do that another time. No, I'm gonna, I have yeah, a story yeah. that,
1: no, go ahead. I have a no, story that, no, uh, sorry, story, uh, that
0: yeah. we, uh, that we could cut kind of maybe wrap on, um, before that two things, two points. One is with, uh, within orthodoxy. I mean, with just, just in general, um, the, Tying off what you were saying, you were t- you were talking about you know not 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 just showing up there just kind of for funsies, but like to go there because you think that that that's where you're going to find Christ. Related to that, you if you do go to an Orthodox church, um, they have especially coming from a Protestant background, it was kind of a little weird to me that they do communion every week, and once I understood. The whole concept, it's just, it's just a whole, Mm -hmm. we could do a whole episode on that. Right, I get it. But it, it was also interesting to me that they will not, if you don't, when when I was going to go there for the first time, people said, if you are, if you're not a baptized member of the Orthodox Church, don't go up and receive communion. Mm -hmm. And it's not because like, this is the special thing that's only reserved for, for the members. It's because- this is the body and blood of Christ, and receiving it willy nilly can actually do harm to you. Mm-hmm. Going and receiving communion from an Orthodox church without having gone through the process of joining the church will actually harm you, it will cause harm to you. And tied to that idea, kind of, is also. Um, there's another anecdote, and then I'll tell my story. Is the the conception of hell? So we have the it, within the West, there's heaven and hell exist in a in a in a dialectic tension, <laughs> and the orthodox understanding or, or 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 belief in hell is that heaven and hell are both eternally in the presence of God. So people who are in hell are people who are eternally in the presence of God, and the experience of being eternally in his presence is a hellish experience for them because they have established throughout their lives that they have rejected him, that they don't want him, that they don't want to be in his presence. So for them, being in the presence of his love is like a burning fire that is, that is burning them. And it's, it's agonizing. They hate it, but this is what they chose. Mm -hmm. They actively chose to put themselves there. Mm. So I think those ideas are kind of connected there that God is, you, you can, you can think of God as like a roaring lion or like a burning fire. And those things are really good when they're on your side. And they're really not when they're not. Um, or when you're on their side, I suppose you should say. Um, those Those were just a couple of anecdotes that, that came to mind as you were talking about that. The the story. So um, we so we moved to Texas in January and we had been making, we, we decided a while before that, that we wanted to move to Texas, but we were planning on doing it later this year or next year. We weren't going to leave when we did. But Some things changed with us um, financially and it became apparent that this was going to be the best move to to move now. But throughout the month of December, we were agonizing over whether, like what we should do. Should we stay in California and just readjust our focus and start doing some different stuff? Or should we relocate to Texas? And one of the biggest things that was holding us in California was we had just started attending a church there. And um, the church that we were attending, we'd been going for maybe four months, three or four months at that time. The church was, um, St. Andrew's Orthodox Church in Riverside, which is for anybody who's familiar with him, it's the church of father Josiah Trinum, And so he was my first Orthodox priest, which is, I, I, I consider myself abundantly blessed to have had that as, a, as my first experience with Orthodoxy. The man is an absolute Titan. We, so as we were, as we were, um, agonizing over this decision about whether or not to leave we requested a a meeting with him to go sit down and talk with him and um, kind of present some of what we were thinking and get his counsel get his his feedback and i knew going in that he wasn't going to tell us you should do this or you should do that he wasn't going to say you should stay in california or you should go to texas and honestly i would have had less respect for him if he had I knew that he was just, I just kind of, I don't know why. I just kind of knew that he was going to give us counsel on how to make the decision for ourselves, hmm. but he wasn't going to make the decision for us. And when we went, we sat with him, we ended up talking with him for almost an hour, which is just, I mean, I I will never forget that hour for the rest of my life. Just sitting there in his office, just talking to him. For For anyone who's watched him on YouTube, like, you see his videos where he's sitting in his office with his his uh his library, his books right behind him. Just imagine him pushing himself back from his desk, turning to his right and we were sitting right there just talking to him. It was it was like surreal. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so um he just an absolutely beautiful man. He told us a story. So first of all, we told him kind of what we were what we were thinking and we were like, you know, should we should we uh um, you know should we stay here should we go you know we'd be able to make more money there um, but we have the church here we have family but we're also really um we're concerned about raising a child in southern california and um you know not we don't want to have to deal with the medical system here and you know it seems like things are getting bad we'd like to go somewhere where we have a better support system you know yada 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 and after listening to us he kind of sat and thought for a minute and then he said the first thing he said was you guys are going to be just fine. No matter what decision you make, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be, God is going to be with you, whether you stay or whether you go. Now, one thing about orthodoxy, he said, he said, we orthodox, we don't run. We're not people who flee. We don't try to escape persecution. We stay and we fight for our communities. And he said, he, he talked about how, you know, the, the, the sheriff in Riverside County is, 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 uh, he's based (laughs) and how um you know that he encourages his parishioners to be active in their local communities get involved in their local governments be on their city councils you know be active have an influence on your community Hmm. he said that he doesn't care what happens throughout the rest of california he said riverside is we are going to i don't remember exactly what he said but the idea was essentially like we are going to maintain a hold on riverside because this is where like our responsibility as orthodox christians is to stay in riverside and save riverside Hmm. at the same time he said texas is fantastic there's a litany of fantastic churches in texas um his bishop is 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 in um the bishop who ordained him is in in um, kansas so his territory includes all of texas and he's like i can give you priests to, to connect you to, depending on where you end up. If you decide to go there, that's a great decision. You're going to be just fine. But then he told us a story and he said, now I, I don't remember some of the exact details of it um, because he, he told us a lot of stuff and I just didn't retain all of it. But if I remember correctly, this was something that happened in Eastern Europe and it was one of his like mentors or a, a, a priest who had a, a big influence on him was the one who had told him the story because it had happened to him to that other priest. So he's serving the liturgy on a normal, ordinary Sunday. And, um, the back door of the church opens and a woman comes in and she's just sobbing, just wailing and completely distraught. And she's kind of disrupting the service. And so he, he sends a deacon out and says, Hey, go, um, just, just, just tell her to go out outside the church. And as soon as I'm done, I'll come out. I promise. As soon as I'm finished serving the liturgy, I'll come out and I'll attend to her and help her with whatever she needs. So he goes out and he tells her, she goes out of the church. So at the end of the liturgy, this priest goes out and says, you know, what's going on? Like what, what, what's up, what's wrong. And she just, is just sobbing. And she says, um, father, just, y- y- you know, every single thing that my husband and I have set our minds to, we've been successful with, you know, our farm is just wildly successful generating crops. Like you wouldn't believe Our children have all grown up. They've all married wonderful people. They've got children. They're all successful in every single thing that they do. All of our friends are fantastic. Um, You know, we're, we're, we're perfectly settled for the rest of our lives. We have, we have nothing to complain about. We have nothing to ask for. Our lives are, are, are perfect. We have, there's no issues. We have nothing that we could complain about. There's nothing that we could possibly ask for. And and she looked at him and the way, the, I, I will never forget his face as he was telling us this story. He's, he's like very dramatically acting out the whole thing. Mm. And she just looks up at him, just tears are streaming down her face, looks up at him and says, Father, God has abandoned us. And then he just throws his head back and just roars, just laughing. <laughs> and he said, in the West, we don't we can't comprehend suffering. Mm. We have no idea what suffering is in the West. In the East, they know suffering. Mm. And they know that if they're not suffering, they're not growing. Mm. That suffering is the tool that God uses to mold and grow us. Suffering is a gift. It's something to be cherished. And I, I, I haven't been able to forget that story ever since he told it to us that like that's the to to this woman the fact that they were so blessed that there was nothing like think of the story of job Mm -hmm. like there is nothing that they could ask for they had no they were they were experiencing no resistance in their life in anything that they did and to her that was an indicator that god had abandoned them Hmm. because in her mind the she recognized the presence of god through the existence of obstacles and persecution and stress and and um, barriers that she would have to exercise faith to overcome. And that without those standing in her way, her faith was going to deteriorate and she was gonna fall away from God. That And that's just, that's a, a perspective that is completely and utterly foreign to anyone in the West.
1: Yeah, I mean, what that's a beautiful story. I mean, what a good way to kind of explain phronema there for for people right. who have never heard it before. I um I was thinking of another story I heard. This this wasn't one that was told specifically to me, but um I'll reiterate it the best I can and you may have heard of it if you know you, we listen to some of the same content. But um there is a a, a monastery in a far corner of the world and down below where the, the visitors would kind of come and check in before they could go up and see the monks or you know progress along the, the high reaching steps that would go up to the monastery from the ground below, there was one monk down there who would greet all the people and he was um, he was a lifetime alcoholic. And the reason that the um, head of the monastery put him down there was somewhat lost on the rest of the rest of the monks who you know, would very much like to have been in that position to be the very first person that somebody saw when they were coming to visit the monastery. Um, so they would often inquire, why does this monk who drinks himself into a stupor every night after his work is over, why does he get to do this? And they never really received an inadequate answer, but they always kind of held a grudge were a little bit upset that they saw this sinner down there and he was taking their place. Well, one day the monk who's, The alcoholic who's greeting the folks down below um, passes away, uh, is given to God, and the monk, one of the monks sees it, and he comes and he goes over to the the father of the abbey and says, "Uh, the the monk, the monk who drinks all the time, father, he died, and the head of the abbey says, oh, I I know, Uh, I saw the angels carrying him away to heaven, and the monk goes, the angel's carrying him away to heaven. He's been, he's an alcoholic. He's been drinking it. He said, listen, let me explain it to you. When he first came to the monastery 20 years ago, he was drinking 25 drinks a day. And every year on Pascha, on Passover, on Easter, he would give up one. So over the years, he went from 20 drinks to 19 drinks to 18 drinks to 16 drinks. And when he died, he was only having four drinks a day and the angels took him to heaven. So for anyone who's a Western Christian or Western, really anything atheist, and you don't understand Matt's story about struggle, what the struggle means, and are quick to judge people who we think are doing evil things. We don't know what's going on in someone's heart. We don't know the struggle that they're going through. We don't know how close they are to God. And it's not really up to us. What's up to us, I believe, is to turn our view inward and to work on our own struggle and to ask for help and to know that we are not evil, we are not damned, we are not ruined, we are not hopeless, that God is, not only did he create us to be with him, the whole purpose of being here is to go back to him and that's what he wants. He will not drag you kicking and screaming to him in any way, but he will receive you when you're ready and you do not have to be perfect. So, from one amateur theologian to anybody who's caring or listening, those two stories might be a really good way to sum up the what what may have sounded like a very academic conversation at some some point. So, so I was we, just trying we... to figure
0: out how to fit in a, a my struggle. Um, <laughs> like I'm going to write a book called My Struggle. I was trying to figure out how to fit that in there, but um, I couldn't. I couldn't think of something before you finished. But I think yeah, that was. I think that was a good way to wrap
1: it up. Um, I'm not going to do a plug because I don't have anything to plug. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, you've got I our guess. Twitter accounts are on the screen. You can go yeah, ahead. and
1: I, I actually I tweeted a little bit last night just because I mostly because you know, my girlfriend went to bed and I just wanted to jazz my brain up a little bit. So I figured I'm just going to throw. I don't even remember what I picked out three the three first things that I saw. I think you were one of them. I commented on them and I'm like I'm going to look at these in the morning and they're going to juice me up so I can do a show. And then I totally forgot to <laughs> look at them.
0: I didn't notice that you'd reply to something. I need I, to go see what you said.
1: Don't, don't even worry about it because it, whatever it is, it's just silliness that was designed to like goose people up. And the whole point was that I would go back <laughs> and I would see them goose stuff, but I'd be all ready for the show. And I didn't do any of that. So everybody could just ignore <laughs> anything that I said last night. But, um, yeah, hopefully there'll be some episodes of, of King pill coming out and hopefully there'll be some episodes of what I hope to call the age of information, the rebrand of you're talking over me coming out. Um, I'll race you to see who doesn't do it first. (laughs) (laughs) Deal. (laughs) Uh, All right, bud. I guess that's it. Let's talk soon. All right. Sounds good. All right. Cheers.